Hi folks, Bob Main here with another episode of today's survival show, helping you do what you can with what you have, wherever you are. This is episode number 272, and if you listened to the previous episode, which was called Blackout Wars, you heard Cal Wilson. He is a listener to this show. Uh, He's a forum participant. He is a terrific guy and a terrific modern survivalist. He's also an author, the author of the book Dirt Cheap Valuable Prepping. And I've interviewed Cal on this show. And if you just search Cal Wilson, you'll see his books. If you want to buy some of Cal's books, by the way, uh, please do so on my Amazon store. Go through todayssurvival.com. There's two S's in that web address, by the way. Todayssurvival.com. Click the Amazon store and uh, check out Cal's books. Well, Cal interviewed Dr. Peter Pry. And boy, was this ever a great interview. You're going to hear part two of this interview. And so that's why this is called Blackout Wars Part Two, because Blackout Wars is the name of Dr. Pry's latest book. And, you know, I like to keep things pretty practical on this show, and I've talked about EMPs, and, you know, I think I'm changing my mind on the subject of EMPs, electromagnetic pulse, and how they can be very destructive and very catastrophic. It's more likely than I have ever thought, and after listening to this interview with Dr. Peter Pry, and his credentials are incredible. Uh, Dr. Peter Pry is one of the leading experts in the United States, and also... um, has been has appeared before Congress many many times, and uh, many task forces in the U.S. Congress. Uh, if you go back and listen to the previous episode, Blackout Wars, he introduces himself in the interview, so you can hear all about Dr. Pry's credentials. And if you just search Dr. Peter Pry, P R Y, you will also come up with all kinds of links and learn about Dr. Pry and what he has done. Uh, very, very credible, credible source. So, Cal Wilson interviewed him, and it was a longer interview. This is the same interview, but it's part two. Really, really uh, profound stuff here that's going to get you thinking. I promise this is going to get you thinking. Here we go, part two with Dr. Peter Pry. Well, I've always been told Islam is the religion of peace. Of course. So uh, I guess we can just uh, right, uh, ignore uh, what I just said, and uh, you know, because it's so politically incorrect. Well, that's that's reassuring. Um, you did tell me there were going to be moments of humor on this show. Uh, yeah, yeah where possible. That, that's going to be one of the high points. Of the <laughs> Islam is the religion of peace. Yes, indeed. Where Anybody possible. who knows the life of Muhammad would agree. <laughs> yeah. Um, so basically, getting back to the military attacks on the grid and EMP. Uh, so what you're saying, it, is, is I gather, is that we're kind of where we are, where we were September 10th, as far as it attacks on the grid. That uh, we're totally vulnerable and totally unprepared for whether it's military or cyber or EMP attacks on our grid. Yes, that's correct. Okay, um, which brings me to EMP. Um, am, am I correct? Uh, according to my research. There are several thousand nuclear tests that have been conducted by the Soviet Union and the United States since 1945. And so far as I could tell, only you know, less than, say, 20 were tests on the upper atmosphere explosions, you know, the type of nuclear 
detonation that would cause an EMP. So it just occurs to me that we're all pretty ignorant of, of EMP. Maybe, maybe you can explain to the listeners what, what we're talking about when I say EMP. Okay, well, when you detonate a nuclear weapon at high altitude, that is an altitude of 30 kilometers, um, the iconic EMP attack involves a, a single nuclear weapon detonated at an altitude of about 300 kilometers over the center of the United States. At altitudes of this, uh, like this, whether it's 30 kilometers or 300 kilometers, what happens is, you know, there's no blast on the ground. There's no radioactive fallout that results. There's no thermal effects that, you know, can, can burn people and that sort of thing. Uh, on a cloudy day, you might not even see it. At those altitudes, you might not even hear the blast. The one thing that happens is you get an electromagnetic pulse, which is it's a super energetic radio wave. It's like a radio wave, and it travels at the speed of light. It'll pass harmlessly through your body, but this radio wave has got so much energy in it that it will fry electronics everywhere, uh, you know, in communications, transportation, business and finance, industrial systems, the electric grid. Everything depends directly or indirectly upon electricity these days, electromagnetic and electronic systems, including food and water. And all of that stuff would be fried, and in a moment you would lose basically what makes us a modern civilization capable of sustaining 320 million people in our country. And uh, some uh, have compared it to putting the country into a time machine, sending us all back to the pre-electronic age. But now we have a population that we can't sustain with those primitive pre-electronic technologies. And so people would starve to death in mass, and you would have societal chaos and breakdown. And, and that's what, those are the effects of EMP, and that's what an EMP is. And so ideally, the, the perfect EMP would be a pretty uh, right in the middle of the country, and uh, you know, 50 kilometers up or higher than that. Am I correct? Well, 300 kilometers altitude would put an EMP field over all 48 contiguous United States. It would also reach deep into Canada and uh, and into Mexico as well at three at 300 kilometers. But that's the iconic attack: 300 kilometers over the center of the country, say where say usually Omaha, Nebraska is usually which is where the streets where uh, strategic command our nuclear missile command post is located in Omaha um, but the um, but that's not the only way you can make an attack that would bring our civilization to its knees you, you know you could do an attack at, at much lower altitudes at 30 kilometers you, you wouldn't need a missile to reach an altitude like that you know you could use a meteorological balloon or or, or private jet aircraft that goes on a zoom and get above 30 kilometers. Mm -hmm. And you could use any nuclear weapon. <laughs> and while the field would, would have a radius of 600 kilometers, which is still a long radius, but that wouldn't cover the whole country, um, <clears throat> it would, it would uh, cover many states, you know, uh, and uh, it would cause at the speed of light, it would destroy hundreds of thousands of SCADA systems, those are the supervisory control and data acquisition systems, the little computers that run all the critical infrastructures, the electric grid, water systems, gas systems, they're in all kinds of industrial facilities. Hundreds of thousands of them would be destroyed immediately. You know, you'd lose the HV transformers that are under the print of that pulse. You'd lose 
which is all kinds of electronic systems would be destroyed, and and effects wouldn't be limited to the EMP field. That would put in motion cascading failures throughout the whole grid, just in the same way that the falling tree branch back in 2003 caused a blackout in the northeastern United States temporarily and put 50 million Americans into the dark. You know, if that could be done with a falling tree branch, imagine what an atomic bomb detonated at 30 kilometers causing an EMP field 600 kilometers in radius, you know, mm-hmm. would do. I yep. mean, it would be a, a mitigated and for sure protracted catastrophe that would probably take down the eastern grid for months or years. And that, that alone, that much more modest The end of our civilization is 75% of the electricity is generated by the eastern grid and most of our population lives in the eastern grid. But even the iconic attack is not. North Korea has practiced that. I mean, they've got the KSM-3 satellite that passes over us at the optimum altitude and trajectory to do that classic iconic EMP attack. Iran has orbited satellites on that altitude. You could do it by launching a medium-range missile off of a freighter. that has been practiced by both Iran and by uh, North Korea. So uh, there are many ways of doing it. But going back to your original point, because I I think the suggestion you were making is that, well, how can we have confidence in EMP as a threat when there have only been, relative to all the kinds of nuclear testing that has been done, there's only been a, a, a relative handful have been done at high altitude. You know, and, to the, and the answer to that question is, uh, you know, you don't need to do a lot of tests, you know, to know that the, these are going to have catastrophic consequences. Um, only two cities have ever been destroyed by atomic weapons, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You know, we don't have to go and drop atomic bombs on any, or nuclear or hydrogen bombs on any other cities to know for sure, you know, what the yeah. effects are going to be. As I understand, uh, no. Hiroshima was not even tested before it was dropped. That was the uranium bomb. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Hiroshima was not even tested. and uh, uh, It's a myth that you have to test a nuclear weapon in order to have high confidence that it will work. Uh, the North Koreans were building nuclear weapons in 1994. They didn't test till 2006. India and Pakistan both built nuclear arsenals you know, before they actually tested. Pakistan built an arsenal before it actually tested a bomb. Well, most of the time when what nations have tested has been for political reasons. It's not because they need to ensure that the bomb will work technologically. You know, you can test components and have high confidence that it's going to work. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, on the EMP, in terms of having high confidence that that will take things out, uh, the one most famous experiment that we had, uh, you know, the uh, Starfish Prime high-altitude nuclear test in 1962, you know, it, it caused all kinds of disruption, knocking out light and, and un, underwater communication systems, radio stations in the Hawaiian Islands that were just on the edge of the EMP field. Mm-hmm. And we didn't even know. We didn't even know it was going to generate an EMP. We actually discovered the EMP phenomena when we did that test. We didn't know that the, that Starfish Prime was going to create an EMP. Mm-hmm. Dr. Graham, who had been the later was the chairman of the EMP Commission. His first job as a young defense scientist was to join the team of scientists that went to Hawaii to figure out what happened. And that's where we discovered EMP. Now, the Soviets had known about it before we did. Uh, Their high-altitude testing had done some similar unexpected damage in Archangel and Mermaid.
did a series of tests of about six or seven tests and uh, when they knew about the phenomena they used a wide variety of weapons very low yields to very high yields varying the altitudes they wired up uh, over Kazakhstan and they wired up Kazakhstan with all kinds of sensors the, the Soviet Union the Russians today have the best EMP data in the world but they actually took down the Kazakh grid like six or seven times rebuilt it took it out again you know doing EMP basically on their own people you know uh, and uh, so they had the, have the best information in the world we don't have anything like the empirical data that the Russians got uh, but what we got from Starfish Primal is alone is enough you know because once we understood the phenomena we could build EMP simulators you don't need a nuclear weapon to, to create an EMP field we can do it with simulators We've spent decades studying the damage it can do to all kinds of electronics. In fact, when the EMP Commission was stood up, uh, the commission on which I served, you know, we did that again, and we used EMP simulators to fry all kinds of modern electronics to see what the, you know, how 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 bad the damage will be. And we, one of the things we proved is that the uh, is that the scientific theory was right that as our electronic systems get better and better and smaller and smaller and faster and faster and can run on lower and lower voltages, um, they also become just as vulnerable to more and more vulnerable to EMP. There's a, 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 a almost a perfect correlation that if you increase by five-fold, you know, the speed and reduce by five-fold the amount of current that you need to run a semiconductor, for example, <coughs> Pardon me. Um, uh, it also increases by fivefold your vulnerability to an EMP effect. And consequently, the modern electronics that we have today are literally millions of times more vulnerable to EMP than the old vacuum tube technologies uh, from the 1960s. Well, I wanted to ask you, um, sorry, uh, just in a city street, what would people look out and see if the city was uh, subjected to an EMP attack? Well, uh, it would depend upon the kind of uh, kind of weapon. Uh, if we're talking about, if you want to know that, if the um, one good indicator, I think, for uh, how many cars would stop, would, one thing that would be an obvious thing, so that you would know it wouldn't be a blackout, would be a, a lot of cars wouldn't be able to start. You know, the EMP would stop the cars, and. Um, you might also almost be able to gauge the kind of weapon that was used by by whether by the percentage of the cars taken out. You know, if like most of the cars just were stopped, you couldn't get them started. It's probably a super EMP weapon. You know, if uh, I don't know if most of them are still running, but there's you know twenty percent, you know one in five, something like that. It was probably a lower yield nuclear weapon of conventional design, you know. But the idea that you know the cars, buses, vehicles like that would be stopped, you know, basically a cyber attack won't do that. Physical sabotage won't do that. O only uh, a nuclear EMP would, would do that overall. You know, mm -hmm. a large area like the size of a city. So the or power the, would be really out. The effect, the effect would be over the whole country, really. Yeah. So that's one thing. Planes would fall uh, out of the sky. Yes, uh, that's right. Everything would a, be dark. We have a half a million people at any given moment flying in the skies of the United States carried by 2,000 aircraft. You know, many of those would come crashing to the earth, 
you know, you'd not, you'd, you, it's not just uh, the kinds of things that you'd have in a normal blackout where you lose your light, you lose your uh, communications, there could be no running water, the refrigerator wouldn't work, you know, food would start spoiling uh, immediately. Um, there'd be a run on food at the grocery stores. Uh, you know, we only have enough food in the grocery store to feed the local population for about 72 hours. Then it has to be resupplied from these major food warehouses. The food in the big, the big regional food warehouses, uh, uh, they've only got enough, uh, typically they only have enough gasoline to run their emergency generators for a couple of days. You know, the length of time of a normal blackout, after a couple of days, they have no electricity in the food spoiling there too mm-hmm. and even if you could preserve it there's only a 30 day food supply in all those regional food warehouses even if it was preserved even if they managed to get the electricity up and running you know for that full 30 days in 30 days you'd be out of food so um, uh, other kinds of things industrial accidents would happen uh, if, if there were industrial facilities that, you know there might be chemical works most cities have some kind of industrial facilities system. It's not that just that the industry stopped working, but you'd have industrial accidents, uh, chemical spills, oil spills, and nuclear plants. fires break out. Um, nuclear power plants, of course, are the worst. In seven days, their batteries run out. You would have the Fukushima phenomenon happen at the over 100 nuclear power plants that exist, mostly in the eastern United States, mostly co-located with their population centers. You know, they, these things, well, when they go, <laughs> the steam explosions will, will uh, from the burnt fuel rods and cooling pots and, and from the, uh, uh, you know, will cause uh, radioactive clouds uh, to, uh, to propagate from the nuclear reactors. And the wind and weather will carry them over the whole country. Uh, you know, we've done computer simulations, you know, that show that, you know, uh, virtually the whole eastern half of the United States gets covered with uh, dangerous levels of radioactivity as a result of, uh, of uh, the nuclear reactors going to Fukushima. And that's just one, you know, of the, of the many industrial accidents that would happen. So it's, uh, in a way, uh, this sort of gives a lie to the, uh, to the argument some have put forward that, uh, that, um, that an EMP would be like putting the United States time machine and sending us back to, let's say, you know, the pre-electronic era. Because in the pre-electronic era, at least you had a pristine environment, you know, to try to survive in. Uh, Ours would be a a, a very damaged environment in the aftermath of an EMP. Um, Radioactivity, toxic fuel, natural gas pipelines would explode all over the place. You'd have firestorms and these natural gas pipelines coming. uh, the water purification plant typically happens in a protracted blackout is that the wastes back up. They don't stay in the plant. They have to go somewhere, and they end up backing up into the rivers and lakes and streams, which which in these modern times are already normally too polluted to drink from safely. I mean, you take your life in your hands if you go out and you take, try drinking from the local pond or river. Mm-hmm. But just imagine what it's like when you've got human wastes, hospital wastes, industrial wastes all backflowing into these ponds and rivers. You know, just finding pure water to drink is going to be an enormous challenge mm-hmm. to, uh, to survive. That's you? the kind of challenge people didn't face in the 19th century. I wish it would have been a situation like going back to that more pristine environment would have a much better chance. 
or even worse. Yeah. Uh, can I ask you about the 90% figure? Um, I've done my best to research that, and I don't find that there's anybody who's knowledgeable about EMP who has disputed that. Nine, 90% of of the country would would succumb uh, to starvation or disease or societal collapse in case of an EMP. And the question is, oh, uh, how, how, did, how do you get to the ninety? No, no, I'm, I'm just I'm just curious. Has anybody in the know disputed that ninety percent figure? I can't find any on, in my own research. No, we have a uh, uh, what was originally disputed was the two thirds figure. Uh, the way it ha what happened was the commission originally, uh, uh, when we were thinking about this and trying to do the calculations, we uh, came up with the judgment that about two-thirds of the American people would probably perish. And we were criticized by a brilliant guy, Fritz Ermarth, who had been the chairman of the National Intelligence Council in the Reagan administration. You know, the way we came up with two-thirds was we said, well, what was the natural caring capability of the land? How many people were around? Uh, how many people could, could the country sustain before we had electricity? And if you go back, uh, you know, as a major as a major thing, we didn't real this country didn't really become electrified in the way that we're talking about, where it's indispensable for modern civilization until the Roosevelt administration. That's when the electrical great electrification of America happened. If you go back to you know uh, the pre-electronic age, say around 1910. I mean, there was some electricity around at that time, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't uh, the foundation stone of our civilization as it is today. And around 1910 to 1900, you know, we had a population of about 100 million people. So, so uh, you know, the commission, I think, you know, quite rightly at the time, you know, thought, well, okay, so if we lost all the electricity and we didn't have all the modern critical infrastructures, <laughs> we'd probably, you know, we might be able to sustain 100 million people which means we'd lose two-thirds of them, we'd lose about two-thirds of the population. Well, Fritz Ehrmann disagreed, and he pointed out just what we've been talking about. You know, Fritz said, look, back in 1900, 75% of the population were farmers. Today, less than 2% of our population are farmers. Almost everybody was only one generation removed from being pioneer stock. In other words, in 1900, virtually every American was a survivalist. They knew how to hunt, they knew how to fish, they knew how to live off the land. It had some experience gardening or, or surviving on their own. That is not the case today. You know, most Americans today do not know how to hunt, fish, live off the land. They are not. They are many generations from that pioneering tradition. Um, most of us live in the cities. We don't live in the country anymore. You know, <laughs> and uh, and uh, in addition to that, uh, you know, we weren't taking into account. Uh, it didn't take into account the environmental damage that that you and I have just discussed. The fact that, you know, the fact back in 1900, you weren't, you were dealing with a pristine environment. There were still buffalo around, well, maybe not in great numbers, but, you know, lots of game. To compared to the day, the rivers and lakes were relatively pure. Um, they wouldn't have had to, they didn't have to cope in 1900 with, with nuclear reactors going Fukushima and natural gas pipelines exploding and big firestorms in the city airliners crashing out of the skies. All of those things are going to happen. So, you know, uh, we, we recalculated. So, uh, uh, to make a long story short, the dispute was over our original lower estimate. We actually got criticized for underestimating.
Yeah, so the two-thirds figure is not high enough. And, and I think, and, and Dr. Graham agreed, and I agree too, that when you actually think it through more about what would what, what it would really be like, you actually need to kick the, uh, the casualties up to the 90% level. And that's in one year? Yes, one year. Um, you mentioned earlier there there were signs that the Iranians and Koreans had been practicing a means of delivering an EMP. Um, what were those again? They they were shooting missiles straight up in into the lower atmosphere. Uh, well, the, uh, uh, the satellites, uh, both of them have orbited satellites in in a way that's consistent with a secret weapon that was developed by the Soviet Union during the called the Fractional Orbital Bombardment System. And, uh, you know, what you do is you launch a satellite to the south. The satellite is just, is, it's a nuclear weapon. It's disguised to look like a satellite. And it doesn't follow the trajectory that a ballistic missile does. A, what NORAD looks for when you're under attack, you're looking at something coming over the North Pole. And it's on an arcing ballistic trajectory because that maximizes the accuracy of the warhead. So um, our guys are looking for something like that when they're looking for a threat. And, uh, and the Soviets knew that during the Cold War, so they came up with a secret weapon called the FOBS, the Perfectional Orbital Bombardment System. And the idea was that you would launch it not on a ballistic trajectory, but on a satellite trajectory. So it looks like a peaceful satellite, and it's uh, but it's a warhead, you know, disguised to look like a satellite. And you launch it to the south, so that it's going away from the United States. That reassures us. But then you pass it over the South Pole, and it comes up at a. Uh, 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 and, it, and it traverses the South Pole and comes up at us from the southern direction because they knew during the Cold War and today we have no ballistic missile early warning radars looking south. And we have no interceptors facing south. We're completely blind, defenseless from the south. And uh, <clears throat> their idea was to start a nuclear war that way by launching a, a FOBS over the South Pole, doing an EMP attack that would fry our command and control. And then they would launch their massed strikes from over the North Pole to take out our ICBMs and their silos and the bombers on the bases and the submarines that were still important. Anyway, interestingly, the North Koreans and the Iranians somehow got the same idea. I think the Russians told them about it because they, they have very close working relationships with the Russians. I think the Russians have been deliberately proliferating technology and strategic ideas to the North Koreans and the Iranians on the theory that the enemy of my enemy is my friend even though these, they, North Korea and Russia and Iran have nothing in common in terms of their, in terms of their ideology. They all have in common that they uh, regard the United States as a, as a mortal enemy and would like to take us out. But uh, So the North Koreans basically have this same system that the Soviets came up with called the Fractional Orbital Bombardment System. And as I explained earlier, they appear to have practiced it using this thing back at, uh, during the nuclear crisis in April of 2013. Likewise, the Iranians have practiced launching, what appear to be practicing launching and making EMP attacks by satellite. But in addition to the satellite, they have both practiced launching off of freighters. Uh, the Iranians have practiced launching a short-range missile off a freighter at sea. They've also practiced with their Shahab-3, which is their best medium-range missile. This is a missile that if it was on a freighter, it could reach that optimum, it could do the, op the iconical EMP attack. The Shahab-3 has the range to reach the center of the United States at the proper altitude to put an EMP field over the whole United States. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, the North Koreans have 
that same nuclear crisis that happened in 2013, I guess I should finish the story, uh, they also seem to have practiced an EMP attack, or at least positioning and posture themselves to do an EMP attack off a freighter. Uh, it was in June. The crisis was supposed to be over by then. In June of 2015, we intercepted a North Korean freighter that was trying to transit the Panama Canal carrying uh, two SA-2 nuclear-capable missiles in the hold of the freighter mounted on their launchers. Now, these don't have the range to reach center of the United States, but from the Gulf of Mexico, you know, you could you could easily reach the eastern grid and, and do an EMP attack. In fact, it could be done just as you were describing. You wouldn't even have to launch it toward the United States. You could launch it straight up or even away from the United States. And the EMP field that would be created by these weapons would be so large that it would, it would encompass a big chunk of the eastern part, eastern grid, and crash the eastern grid, which is enough to take us out. And, um, now, now these these missiles didn't have nuclear weapons with them, uh, you know. But uh, they are they are designed to take a ten kiloton nuclear warhead, and uh, uh, the, the the freighter had already transited the Gulf of Mexico, uh, so they had demonstrated the capability to come right into our backyard with a freighter with nuclear capable missiles on board, and uh, and, uh, and you know it looked like they were practicing the. Uh, uh, the EMP attack off a freighter scenario, which was a nightmare scenario from the EMP Commission's perspective because, you know, if you were to do an attack that way, it's very unlikely you'd ever be able to identify who the attacker is. Yeah. You know, the whole idea of deterrence only works if you know who to retaliate against. This completely keeps your fingerprints off the attack. And um, uh, the only reason we found out about it, we'd never have known about it, but the, the North Koreans seem to have been so bold that they wanted to see, well, we got into the Gulf of Mexico. They came into the Gulf of Mexico from the Atlantic side, you see. They had gone from North Korea, made a couple of stops, curiously. They stopped in Russia, they stopped in China, and uh, then, uh, then, the, then they came all the way into the Atlantic, uh, across the Atlantic. And then it was like, they wanted to see just how much they could get away with, and uh, decided to go back to North Korea through the Panama Canal. Okay. It was almost as if they wanted to see, well, we've we've done all this, we've gotten into the Gulf of Mexico, they don't know about it. Can we actually sneak through the Panama Canal without these guys finding out what we're up to? And um, and they almost did get away with it. The only reason we found the missiles was this particular freighter was notorious for smuggling drugs and small arms and terrorist groups. <laughs> and so it was, it was on a watch list for drug smuggling. And... Um, occurred to me that um, these old Scud missiles, I guess, uh, are available on the black market, and they don't have to be that precise to produce an EMP. I mean, off 200 miles off the coast would be in international waters, and, okay. and shooting uh, straight up, you know, forget about the guidance, just, just shooting straight up with, say, a 10 kiloton nuclear bomb, which is, after all, 1940s technology. Right. Uh, would would off the east coast uh, shut down the eastern grid, and I, I that would be it for us. 
I hate to say it, that, that seems that's pretty easy and simple. Oh, it is very easy. I think that's an additional reason for this being such an attractive option to rogue states or terrorists, because it's the easiest kind of nuclear attack to execute. And it has the biggest possible payoff. Um, uh, I often, I often uh, have read from people who know nothing about EMP. Uh, oh, if they had a nuclear weapon, why would they waste it on an EMP attack? Wouldn't they use it to detonate the a city, okay? These people who think like that, they ha just haven't thought the problem through. Right. You know, first of all, it's very risky. I mean, it's much riskier to try to get a, a weapon into a city than it would be to just do what you just described, which is to launch a warhead off in international waters, you know? As soon as you start coming into our, into our territorial waters, if you're the bad guys, you know, you're going to be worried about the worst possible thing that could happen is that the CIA or FBI could discover that you're trying to make this attack and capture your bomb. And then they'd know you were trying to do it. They'd know who you are and they'd have your bomb and, well, that would be it for you. And you're running a very high risk when you come into our territorial waters from the bad guy's perspective because he's worried, you know, that maybe there's an agent that's managed to penetrate his operations that's among the crew. You know, all it would take would be one phone call to the FBI and say, hey, I've got an atomic bomb. Do you have a million dollars? Right? You know? Yeah. The temptation would be, you'd have right. to have absolute confidence your team wouldn't betray the operation to make a lot of money. Uh, you'd have to have absolute confidence that you hadn't been penetrated by any, by the United States or by some ally or even hostile service. Maybe the Russians wouldn't want to see an American city blown up and there might be a Russian agent that would have penetrated your your operations, you know? And then you've got to baby that bomb. It's got to be offloaded from the from the freighter. You've got to, you've got to drive it across what are probably going to be choppy waters somewhere. You can't go into a port because, you know, we've started putting radiation detectors and all kinds of sensors out there. Now, theoretically, you could shield the, the bomb and all the rest, but why even take that chance? You know, uh, the smart thing to do would be to avoid a, a major port and to try to come ashore, maybe in the Chesapeake Bay, some low-population area, you know, where you might be able to get it. But that does entail now, you know, moving the bomb up, up across the water, up a beach, into a truck, carrying it, getting it to a city. All of this, you have to be hope that you're not going to be discovered by a police officer or seen by hunters. Uh, <coughs> mm -hmm hope that the operation hasn't been blown and the FBI aren't waiting for you with open arms at the apartment that you've rented <laughs> in advance, you know, where you're going to put the bomb. I mean, the, 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 the odds are much higher that the operation will fail, uh, uh, you know, and, 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 and we might be able to capture the bomb and prevent the operation from happening. And then even if you succeed, what do you get if you succeed? You know, uh, a 10 kiloton weapon detonated in a major city will probably produce 200,000 casualties, not mostly from the blast, but from fallout effects, okay? Yeah. So that will ruin, that will ruin, uh, it won't completely destroy a major city. You know, we'll be able to recover from that. And we'll, it'll also leave all kinds of bomb debris because concrete and steel and glass is perfect for capturing the bomb debris, which is what we use to do forensic analysis to figure out where the bomb came from. So, uh, you know, you'd have to, even if you succeeded, 
you're putting yourself in a situation where your country is going to be turned into a plate of glass by a retaliatory strike. Yeah. And you haven't brought America to its knees. You know, what you'll have done is you'll piss us off enough so that we will turn you into a plate of glass for sure. Yeah. So if you have any brains, that's not what you would do if you had a, a nuclear weapon. I mean, the, the one option for using a, a, a primitive weapon, one weapon, to take us out as a civilization and to get away with it would be to do an EMP attack. That way you can do the attack anonymously and uh, it gives you the, and it's, uh, and, you know, have very high confidence that you're going to be able to take us down as a society, which is what your goal is at the end of the day, to eliminate the United States as an actor on the world stage. Well, it's, uh, by the way, the, yeah. the Iranians uh, have written about attacking the United States with EMP. As have, uh, you know, I've actually never seen an Iranian military writing that talks about detonating weapon in a city, like a, a terrorist attack. I've only seen them write about EMP attacks. And um, there are ideological reasons for it, too, as it happens in a lot of their literature. Mm -hmm. uh, in their twisted way of thinking, they're not to blame for the 90% of the American people that end up dying for an EMP attack. We're to blame. You know, because we have, in their in their writings, from their perspective, we have elevated technology to the status of a god. And we are a corrupt, spiritually dead, materialistic people. And it's divine justice. We end up dying from our sins. Uh, one other thing. It, it's, um, it's not only the United States. I think we've all seen that satellite photo of the, like the Korean Peninsula, where the South Korea is all lit up at night and North Korea is totally dark. Uh, if North Korea were to send up, uh, you know, an EMP attack, it would fry their own electronics, which is not much, but all of uh, South Korea as well. Well, actually, I've done the calculations for this. If you were to detonate the weapon 30 kilometers from Busan, the field just misses the demilitarized zone. So it basically covers all of South Korea, and it covers most of the southern Japanese islands where our military bases and the Japanese military bases are located for uh, supporting South Korea in the event of another North Korean invasion. So they can actually do the attack uh, and... Uh, From and inside their own borders. Themselves if, they, ...if they wanted to. You know? Yes. From inside their own borders. From inside their own borders. Right. Well, I'm, talk right. I'm talking about them launching a missile detonated over Busan and South Korea. Oh, okay, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, that scenario, too, that you're talking about, if they were to do it within their own borders, you know, I mean, that's another way of thinking. And, and I've actually seen some EMP commissioners, I think Lowell Wood once talked about that, the idea that, you know, if they wanted to, how could we stop them from, from actually doing a high-altitude EMP te uh, you know, test, quote-unquote, where the bomb was detonated over the territory of North Korea? You know, obviously, because you're right. I mean, they basically have very little infrastructure that would be damaged, but it would it would uh, be catastrophic for South Korea. Right. And there are probably other parts of the world that are similar, you know, where some uh, failed state has almost no electronics but a nuclear weapon, and right over the border is, is a first world state uh, with uh, a highly uh, integrated electronic uh, society there. Uh, the yes. same thing could be done there, too. Well, maybe I can ask you, uh, I think we're running out of time, but your book ends up with some proposals of what we can do 
to protect ourselves, and it's not only at the federal level, it's also at the state level. Uh, maybe you can tell our, our readers what you have in mind as far as protecting the grid or pr proposing, uh, making proposals to protect our grid on the state and federal level. Sure. Uh, well, technologically, what needs to happen is uh, we've known for 50 years how to protect our electric grid and other critical infrastructures from EMP. The Department of Defense has been doing it for 50 years. You know, there are well-known and proven technologies like surge arresters and blocking devices and Faraday cages that will protect against it. Now, it wouldn't even be, even be that expensive. The, the Congressional EMP Commission estimated it would cost about $2 billion. $2 billion would it be, you know, to protect the whole national electric grid. You know, that's what we give away in foreign aid to Pakistan every year. So if we suspended foreign aid to Pakistan for one year, you know, and spent it on the security of the American people instead, you know, we could protect our electric grid. And this would protect it not just from nuclear attack, it would also mitigate all the lesser threats, cyber attack, physical sabotage, <laughs> severe weather. Mm-hmm. Task Force will 
legislators and uh, your state senator to your governor and say, protect our state. You know, let's follow the lead of Maine and Virginia, Florida, and Arizona. Let's protect the grid in our state so people aren't helpless. You don't have to wait. I wouldn't wait for Washington. I'd start a movement now in your state, wherever you are, to get your state protected. And I noticed in your Uh, book you have uh, samples of just already written legislation and executive orders that that can be uh, suggested to use in any individual state. That's right. I've got uh, I've got the actual legislation that has passed in various states to protect their grid, and I also have uh, uh, generic legislation. All you have to do is fill in the blank, fill in the blank, put in the name of your state. The governor would put his name in, and by an executive order, he could protect the grid in his state. Or state legislature could do it by a bill by the same way, just fill in the blank, fill in the name of the state. And you've got a, a, a decent bill that would uh, protect, protect your state grid. Mm-hmm. Also in the book are the narrative histories of what was done in Maine and Virginia, Florida, Oklahoma, and Arizona, written by the senators and state representatives who actually ran this legislation through. And it's very useful. It'll tell you the pitfalls, the fights they had to go through, you know, uh, and, it, and it can kind of give you a model. But it was done in different ways in the different states. So, you know, you, you can think about what strategy is going to be best for your state. So, mm-hmm. now, I don't want to completely dismiss Washington. You know, Washington does seem to be finally getting the message, as it appears to be doing. It is, for, for a fact, doing some good things. The EMP Commission was reestablished, for example, just this year. Um, uh, just before Thanksgiving, so the EMP Commission was coming back. It was the main engine driving most of the progress being made in the country, and it will be back to do that again. And I think if we have a movement going in the states and it links up with help from the federal level from the EMP Commission, that dynamic will be very promising for achieving a breakthrough and keeping this country protected perhaps quickly. Um, the way I envision that people working in the states can be on the ground EMP Commission in Washington can be like the strategic bomber forces to go out and deliver payloads where people in the states need them to be delivered, the knowledge and the arguments and the rest, to uh, blow opposition out, uh, out of the way to get things done in the states. In mm-hmm. addition to that, uh, the House passed unanimously, again, a bill called the Critical Infrastructure Protection Act. It hasn't passed the Senate yet. It's still waiting actually in the Senate. Uh, very hopeful because Ron Johnson, who's the chairman of the House of the Senate Homeland Security Committee, uh, is backs the bill. And if this if bill passes the Critical Infrastructure Protection Act, it'll be a giant step forward to help it solve this problem at the federal level because it directs the Department of Homeland Security to start educating first responders and emergency planners at all levels of government about the EMP threat and to start making plans to protect the electric grid and all of our critical infrastructures from, from EMP at the federal at the federal level. So that will be immediately recruiting, you know, millions of people, first responders, emergency planners, all the assets at, at the federal, state, and local level, people all involved in emergency planning, you know, to against the EMP problem. Uh, that will be a, a giant step forward. And I and understand. I would also like to, Sorry, go ahead. And I, and I would also like to say tell your listeners though not only shouldn't they wait for Washington but I do encourage you to write your senator and congressman to try to get them to support this legislation to join the EMP caucus and do what they can to protect us from the federal level I do encourage them to act 
state level. Don't neglect to protect yourself. Every one of us is our own personal first line of defense for our families and our communities. There are things you can do as an individual to prepare for these worst-case scenarios where the lights go out from the EMP attack or from some other threat that takes, takes down the grid. You know, my parents, who grew up during the Great Depression and survived World War II and had seen government fail in peace and war, almost everybody who had been to the Great Depression in World War II was what today we kind of call dismissively a survivalist. They were all waiting for the system to fail in some catastrophic way for another return of the Great Depression where you couldn't get food anymore. And uh, they were prepared for anything. I mean, my mother was canning goods all the time. My father taught us how to hunt and fish, not for just for recreation, but so that we could feed our families if the worst ever happened. We, my father fed his family the Great Depression by hunting woodchucks and picking berries. And um, uh, almost every inch of our, of our half acre was cultivated as a garden. Um, they had never heard of EMP, but they would have been prepared for it. They would have been prepared for anything. Those virtues of rugged individualism and self-sufficiency seem to have died with that great generation that survived World War II and, and, and lived through the Great Depression. And it seems like in one generation, those virtues have been lost to us. Um, you know, I think people start thinking about taking care of themselves again, in addition to getting government to do its job. But start thinking about taking care of themselves. Everybody should have a food supply, should have a medicine kit, and know how to use it, should be able to defend their family. This is the way all Americans used to be, and all Americans mm -hmm. used to live not too long ago. And if we can recapture those, those are really pioneer virtues that I think made America great and free in the first place, and made us distinctly American. I would like to see those virtues come back, even if there wasn't any EMP threat. Exactly. But there is. Exactly. But there is, and people should be preparing to defend themselves and their families. Our republic, I'll take it on my soapbox for a minute. minute Go ahead. Go outside of my lane as an EMP expert, <laughs> but as a, uh, as a, speaking as a man who's read history, and I think I understand what the founders had in mind when they established this republic, they had in mind for this for the sort of continuity of the American Republic, that particular kind of American, an American of the character of that pioneer stock, someone who, was, who didn't want to be dependent on government, who was actually proud of the fact that they could take care of themselves and provide for their own families. That was the kind of person that was intended to be self-governing and, and that was considered necessary if the Republic was to survive and we weren't to lapse into some kind of authoritarian or totalitarian system eventually. That's why Ben Franklin asked, when he was asked by a lady after the Constitutional Convention, he was asked, what have you done? What have you done, to, uh, done uh, Mr. Franklin? And he replied, I've given you a republic, Adam, if you can keep it. Mm -hmm. And I think part of keeping it is having these virtues and these values that are represented by by this, these concepts of rugged individualism, self-sufficiency, and, and, and pride in not looking to the government for all the answers all the time. Mm -hmm. Pride, in, in that, that, that's what makes you the boss as the average American, you know, and not a subject of the government. That's right. That's well said. Well said. Thanks. You, I was about to talk about personal preparedness 
which people can can learn about here at Today's Survival and their number of uh, books, including my own and others, that talk about being prepared for anything and everything, from from uh, two or three days without power to you know a societal collapse, which is what we were talking about today. Anyway, I think we've kind of run out of time here, but um, I just wanted to say I've I've enjoyed uh, Dr. Pry's writings in in other uh, other forums like the Washington Times, and he's uh, what was the website you mentioned earlier that family research, family safety. Family Security Matters. Family Security. Yes. I do have a website. It's called the EMPTaskForce.org. Okay, thanks. My books are available from uh, Amazon.com or CreateSpace.com. Okay, yeah, I was going to mention all of your books, including your latest, Blackout Wars, are both available. They're all available on CreateSpace.com, which I understand you you prefer we buy them from there, but it's also available at Amazon.com. Yeah, unfortunately, Uh, it's so difficult to order through yeah. You know, people will probably end up having to do it through Amazon.com. I don't know why they make it so difficult to create space, but well, it is. Who knows? And I understand uh, Blackout Wars, uh, a Kindle version is in the works. That's uh, right. I haven't uh, finished that yet, but okay. there is a Kindle version in the works. And I, I also uh, know from my own uh, research that uh, you, there are a whole lot of YouTube videos explaining EMP, and a lot of those involve your own testimony uh, like in front of Congress, your your various speaking engagements. I just saw one recently with uh, Mr. Woolsey. Uh, your name is intertwined with the issue of EMP all over the place, and, and I want to thank you for that. I kind of think of you as, as uh, well, it's probably a, a stretch, but kind of a Winston Churchill figure that you're trying to uh, educate and get everybody aware of this threat that, that we're facing with, with EMP. So... I wanted to thank you for your work, and and thank you for coming on the show here today. Well, thank you so much for that. I greatly appreciate it. Winston Churchill is certainly one of my great heroes. If I can in any way be a shadow emulating him, it would make me very proud and feel like I haven't wasted my life. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, thanks again for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you again. Thank you so much. Well, what do you think? Pretty pretty profound and shocking stuff, huh, as to what's going on. You know, Dr. Price said there in the last part of that interview that you have to prepare for everything, and boy, you do. Now, I've been a big proponent of picking, picking the top two threats that you feel that you have in your area, the top two threats, and preparing for those, getting you and your family prepared. Um, put, put a blackout or either whether it's caused by an EMP or whether it's caused by a cyber attack or whatever, cyber attack, excuse me, or whatever, uh, put that on your list because I don't care what part of the geographical part of the United States that you're in or even anywhere else in the world. I have international listeners that listen to this show. So I want to give a quick shout-out to all my international listeners. Uh, You could be facing a blackout or an EMP attack in your in your part of the world as well, and you've got to be prepared for that, ladies and gentlemen. So, I am confident that if you completed listening to this entire interview, that you got quite a bit out of it. Please use my Amazon store. 
to purchase Dr. Prize books. It's one way you can support today's survival show. Uh, here in 2016, I'm going to have a lot more episodes than I had in 2015. Of course, I've been doing this show for several years. I don't have paid sponsors uh, on purpose. I like to keep this show as independent uh, and free of any kind of advertising as I possibly can. So generous listeners like you support this show. If you buy Dr. Prize books through my Amazon store, todaysurvival.com, and click the Amazon store, let Amazon support me and pay me. And, of course, uh, if you like to shoot and keep your family defended, Dr. Pry talked about that. And let me tell you what, if we have a blackout, there's also going to be violence that you're going to have to protect yourself against. You can also join the Shooters Club, which um, I, myself and my uh, friend Ben Branham, we've put together a really cool exclusive website, which is password protected. It's a membership site. It only costs $8 a month or $75 per year. And uh, exclusive self-defense videos. And you're going to really like it. It's 47 videos on there. It's a great value. You can uh, you can also go to todayssurvival.com, and in the right-hand margin, you can see a link there where you can sign up for the Shooters Club, and then we'll send you a password, and you can start watching all the videos, and you'll be supporting my show as well. So a couple of different ways to do it. Also, join our forum. If you want to join our forum, there's going to be a thread started. Excuse me, not a thread. There's going to be a sub-forum in the comments about podcasts, and there'll be a thread in the sub-forum about this show. Also, Facebook, todayssurvival.com, Facebook, Today's Survival Podcast. Uh, Facebook, just search Today's Survival on Facebook. Check it out. And um, if you join our forum, do me a favor. Email me. Email me at bob at todayssurvival.com. Bob at todayssurvival.com. Give me your username. So that way, I can approve your account. This is the best way I know how to keep spammers off the forum, and it works pretty well. Every once in a while, we get a couple spammers get through. I don't know how they get through, but every once in a while, they, they get through. But this way, I know you're listening, and you want to participate, and you're an active participant, and you want to contribute. So just shoot me a quick email, bob at todayssurvival.com. Tell me you signed up for the forum, and um, you, I'll approve your account in probably 12 hours or less. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening to another episode of today's Survival Show. It's my goal to help you do what you can with what you have wherever you are. Don't forget, if you like shooting and guns, I do another podcast called The Handgun World Podcast. You might want to check that out, too. I got another interview coming up for you in about a week, week to 10 days. Another really cool interview, and I'll keep that a surprise right now. Don't forget to tune in later. Talk to you later.